You're in the water loop. Welcome to Waterloop, the podcast helping water leaders to discover solutions and drive change. I'm the host, Travis Loop. Over the past 20 years, trust in public institutions has plummeted and sales of bottled water have skyrocketed. A new book titled Profits of Distrust explores how these trends are related and the correlation between trust of tap water and government agencies such as utilities. The analysis is discussed in this episode with Manny Teodoro, one of the book's authors and a professor of public affairs at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. In addition to outlining the problem, the book presents a series of reforms that could help rebuild public trust in the water coming out of the tap. Manny talks about several of them, including consolidation of utilities, enforcement of the Safe Drinking Water Act, improving customer confidence reports, paying attention to the taste of tap water, and providing universal service across America. You're in the Waterloop. Manny, I am finally uh, happy to have you on the Waterloop podcast. Uh, you know, I've been connected with you for a number of years, I don't know, five years probably, uh, and always been a huge fan of your analysis uh, and the way you deliver a lot of that analysis. Uh, so good to have you on. And we're going to talk about your book uh, that you have a couple co-authors, The, the Profits of Distrust. Uh, great book name. Also would be a great band name. Um, it's, a, it's a good one. Um, and I love the art on the cover with uh, bottled water and dollar signs because I think that really gets at kind of the crux of the issue or a big symptom of the issue. Uh, you're a professor. So I'm going to ask you... Uh, for your thesis statement, uh, you know, every every professor always demanded that I have my thesis statement identified and have it clear. What's yours with this book? Well, first, thanks, Travis. It's it's good to be with you, and and thanks for taking up the book. And I want to give credit to my co-authors Samantha Zolke at the University of Iowa and David Switzer at the University of Missouri. Uh, wonderful working with them on that project. So the the, the books basic thesis statement is that the choices that people make about the water that they drink reveal something deeper about their relationship with government and their trust in democracy. It's because tap water, or I should just say drinking water in general, drinking water represents a, a deeply intimate and trusting kind of decision. To trust tap water is to trust the whole suite of institutions that created that tap water and provided it to you. To distrust tap water is to distrust those same institutions. So we think that those those choices people make about drinking water reflect something deeper about their relationship with the state. It's also very timely, uh, I think, in our country these days where public trust in government is low overall. Uh, and uh, could you talk a little bit about why that is uh, why and why public trust in water is so low? They go hand in hand. Sure. Yeah, they're, they're one and the same, really. They're, this is probably not a surprise to anyone who will be listening to this podcast, but trust in all institutions in the United States is very low right now. Trust in government is especially low. It's actually the lowest it's been since political scientists have been tracking it, really mm. since the 1950s. So trust in all institutions is low, but especially in government institutions. Now, that has direct implications for drinking water in a few different ways. Uh, first of all, about 85% of Americans get their drinking water from a government. Most of us get our water service from a local government. So there's just automatically a little bit of distrust by association. But then also all water systems are supposed to be regulated by government, whether they are regulated adequately or not is it's kind of a different question, but they're all supposed to be regulated by government. So when we experience problems with our tap water, or more importantly, when we observe problems with tap water, even in other communities, that undermines trust in government. And people who are already politically alienated and already predisposed to distrust government are sort of prone to believing that their own tap water is contaminated. And so when a tap water failure happens in some place like Flint, or Jackson, Mississippi, or more recently, East Palestine, Ohio. People witness those things through the ex 
but sort of through the lens of their expectations about government in general. So the people who are most politically alienated are the most likely to believe that their tap water is contaminated. We live in this moment then when commercial products, for whatever reason, tend to enjoy greater legitimacy than government products. Whether that, that legitimacy is deserved or not, people believe that if they pay for a commercial product, it must be better. And, and so we see this sort of simultaneous growth of the, of the bottled water industry and a, a decline of trust in tap water. Mm. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. Really, nobody I ever talk to that's not in the water space, they have no idea that tap water is regulated by the US EPA, and they've got to meet what over 90 standards. Uh, they've got to test on just like a daily or more frequent basis. And then bottled water is the FDA and like maybe once a month or something. And it's, it's like way less rigorous. Uh, and people have no, literally, they have no idea the regular people I talk to. Um, I was astonished, uh, in your book at the chart that shows public trust in government going down at the same time. And at like the same rate that sales of bottled water went up. Right. And it's like right. over the past two decades, um, could you just dig? And then I think it was like twenty-five billion dollars that that Americans spent or more on bottled water. That, that far more, far, far more than okay. that's the retail revenue as of excuse me, excuse me, wholesale revenue as of about three or four years ago. Almost certainly that number is north of forty billion dollars a year now. And I think it's important to keep that the, the, that number in mind just to give a sense of scale. You know, the, the water sector has been running around, water sector leaders have been sort of running around spiking the ball over the bipartisan infrastructure law, which gave $55 billion to the water sector. Now, that's a lot of money. Now, I don't want to discount that. That's a lot of money. It works out to $11 billion a year over five years. Now, over that same period of time, Americans are going to spend almost four times that much on bottled water. Wow. And that's not to say anything of you know home filtration systems or or uh, kiosks that you see in the supermarket or home delivery services or any number of, of the other alternatives out there. So we have to sort of keep the, the scale in, in mind here. We're, if you look at the total revenue for all drinking water service in the United States, all, all of the utilities in the United States, it's probably something like $80 billion a year. Mm. American $50 billion, or excuse me, $40 billion a year on bottled water. Wow. So, you know, the, the thing that's, that I, I think that reveals a number of things. One is it's clear that Americans are willing to pay for what they perceive to be high-quality water. And that it also reveals that they perceive the product that comes out of the plastic bottle to be superior to the product that comes from their tap. Huh. Uh, it's un, unreal. So... That I am gonna chew on those numbers there. That's incredible. That uh, how much more is being spent on bottled water than was is being given out in this big, huge infrastructure, this historic level of funding. Obviously, imagine if you could convert those bottled water sales or a significant portion of them into utility revenue or infra infrastructure investment, right? Uh, that would have an incredible impact. What's the, what's the impact on consumers of this choice, of this distrust in public water? I mean, clearly it's got enormous affordability impacts, first and mm -hmm. foremost, and those impacts do, do not fall uniformly on the entire population. I, I think this is so important, right? The people who buy the most bottled water are the poor. Uh, Low-income populations, racial and ethnic minority populations are far more likely to drink bottled water as their primary source of drinking water relative to uh, more affluent and whiter populations. So paradoxically, the, the least wealthy among us are spending the most for their tap, for uh, drinking water. You know, bottled water costs about 200 times the price of tap water on average. And that's a conservative estimate. That's that's based on the price of the large cases of water from Walmart, or Costco or whatnot. It's enormously expensive 
If you want to give your family of four the recommended daily water intake, it's going to cost you between $100 and $150 a month just for bottled water. Well, you know, people are, are, are upset about the affordability of water, tap water service that costs $50, $60, $70 a month. And yet consumers, especially low income consumers, are going out and spending twice that much a month on bottled water. So mm. there are serious impacts for affordability. And, and we don't even, we haven't even started talking about things, the, the ecological impact of bottled water, which are, you know, those ecological impacts are enormous. Mm. Bottled water, huge carbon footprint compared with tap water. It's uh, the, the, the bottles themselves create a disposal problem. So there are just all kinds of problems with the bottled water industry uh, for, for the world, and especially for uh, tap water utilities. I wanna talk about this for just one second. Yeah, go ahead. Because I think for a long time, water sector leaders were slow to recognize that bottled water is a threat to the utility business model. And that was, it was, it was easy to dismiss uh, bottled water because look, the water that we actually drink, the water that people put in their bodies out of the tap is a minuscule percentage of the water that a typical utility sells. It's, it's a rounding error. It's a, it's, a, it's a small, small volume. So it's not like utilities are going to lose a lot of sales revenue because people are drinking bottled water. But where it comes back to bite a utility is in public support for infrastructure investment. One of the really surprising things we found in Profits of Distrust is that uh, bottled water drinkers are significantly less supportive of public investments in, uh, in water infrastructure. And that, that was a little bit surprising because you can think about the logic running in a couple of different ways. If I'm unhappy with my tap water, I have a couple of different rational responses. One is that I, if, if the government asks me for more investment, I can say, yes, please spend more, please improve this system so it'll improve my service. That's one potential response. The other potential response is, no, I don't trust you. I think that this, this service is terrible. I think you're incompetent and you might be evil. <laughs> well, what we see empirically is that the people who have already made the choice to drink bottled water must believe the latter because they are actually less supportive of public in, in excuse me public investment in infrastructure that tells us that people are people who are dissatisfied with their tap water service are not willing to pay more to improve that service and the only explanation for that has to be that they just don't trust the institutions that are providing the service mm. I think in your book, you've made it clear that the distrust is largely misplaced. There are water issues. There are quality issues. There's Jackson, there's Flint, uh, there's East Palestine. Uh, there's certainly things that happen. But I think you make the point that by and large, public tap water is of a high quality um, and doesn't merit the level of distrust that's that's placed. Is that right? That's right. That's right. And um Unfortunately, though, those high-profile failures affect behavior everywhere. I, I, I mentioned this a little bit earlier. One of the, the huge findings of our book is that distrust of tap water is contagious. And so failure anywhere undermines trust everywhere. Uh, that, that people na nationally respond to the Flint water crisis. They respond to, to the Jackson, Mississippi situation, uh, even when they live hundreds or thousands of miles away. And the vectors that distrust are not geographic space or common source water, but rather common social identity. So mm -hmm. people who saw Flint or Jackson or East Palestine, they saw folks who looked like themselves. They could identify with those folks. So if I see Jackson uh, or, or Flint, these are majority black cities. They, are, they have high poverty rates. And so non-white populations in, and poorer populations in other parts of the country responded in ways that suggested that they identified with those uh, those folks in those cities that were far away, East mm -hmm. Palestine, Ohio. You know, that's another low-income uh, region of the eastern part of Ohio. Uh, it, it's a it's kind of an Appalachian region of of Ohio, and uh, again, low-income populations across the country could identify with the people who are suffering in that situation. Mm -hmm. And. Going to overall distrust of government and public institutions, right? These populations uh, 
have historically been underserved, neglected, poorly served, done wrong even by government institutions. And so that, that distrust really has deep, deep roots uh, throughout, their li- throughout their lives and their experience. And it just carries over to this water piece. Yeah, that, that, that's right. And, and so you know, people aren't crazy. Our, right. our theory is not that people are crazy or stupid. Right. This is not a, if, you, if your theory is that people are crazy, then you don't really have a theory, right? That, that's not <laughs> um, our, our argument is not that people are crazy or stupid. It, our argument is that people are rational. And if you're part of a population that has been alienated, shut out from uh, the institutions of power for generations, it is not crazy and it is not stupid for you to be wary of those institutions. So when, when people from the government that you don't trust come along and tell you, hey, the water's fine. It's it's perfectly fine for you. Well, well you're not crazy to be a little bit suspicious of that. Yeah. And then meanwhile, the people who tend to be advantaged in our society, the most politically powerful in our society, tend to trust the tap water, which is why you have this strange situation where the, the most affluent people in the United States are far more likely to drink unfiltered tap water. And the, the uh, least... The least affluent among us are most likely to drink the most expensive commercial products. Yeah. And that was an interesting point about affordability earlier. Um, maybe there isn't as much of an affordability challenge as it's more of a allocation of household resources to buy water challenge in some places, right? Because people are paying that water bill for their bath, their shower, or whatever, but then they're spending a hundred and something bucks a month on bottled water. They could have a have things balanced out. I'm not, I'm not making a totally broad sweeping generalization here, right? But that, there's something to that a little bit. There absolutely is, Travis. I'm glad you brought that up because all of our conversations around affordability in the water sector, and there are a lot of conversations. I've been involved in a lot of them. Yeah, they are focused entirely on the bill that people pay to their water and sewer utilities. Now, of course, that's important. Those bills are big. They're regular. People pay them, but we need to take a more holistic view of affordability to include the entire suite of products and services that people are buying uh, under the heading of water. Mm. So if we start bundling in bottled water consumption, bottled water spending alongside uh, the water and sewer bills that pay to their utilities, suddenly the, the outlook looks a lot different. Mm. Right now, now, our questions about the trade-offs between investment and operations on one hand and affordability on the other look a lot different, right? And, and I, I, want, I want to emphasize this because we do poor people in this country no favors by underinvesting in their water and sewer systems mm-hmm. because they can't afford it. Mm-hmm. It, it. This is one of my pet peeves is, is when, when we, we say, well, gosh, we're not going to we're not going to comply with the, state, the Clean Water Act in this town over here, uh, or we're, not, we're going to put off compliance 10 or 20 or 30 years because they can't afford it. Or we're, we're not going to demand rigorous testing or treatment or, or upkeep of distribution systems in this community over here because they can't afford it. Well, what are we really saying there? We're, we're, we're saying certain populations don't deserve clean water. They don't deserve safe drinking water. Because they're not willing to pay for it or they can't afford it. Well, if we look at what they're paying for bottled water, it turns out they, they can afford it. I, yeah. I think from a value proposition, we'd be much better off increasing the water bill by 10 or $15 a month if it means that people will then reduce their bottled water consumption by $100 a month. Right. Absolutely. Wow. I, this reminds me, uh, this is kind of the, the international developing world side but i when i learned about what water.org does with microfinance uh their whole thing is like of those hundreds of millions of people that don't have running water in their house a lot of them are spending money to get it out of the house they're going and spending all this money to get a water truck or fill these things so they can have water let's say they spend a hundred dollars a month to do that if they can get this little micro loan that they pay back for $20 a month to have water in their house, then that, that, that economics works out. And I I thought that was really, that was a really enlightening thing for me too on the international Mm -hmm. stage. It's not that all these people can't afford water. They're spending money 
to go buy it outside of their house. Um, anyway, side story. Um, no, it, it's an important one, though, because it, it reminds us that affordability is a function not just of what the water bill is, but of the resources available to pay for water services by the individual household. And when we take this holistic view, we recognize that investing adequately in the quality of these systems is a part of an affordability strategy. Mm. It, it, if we underinvest in systems and they continue to deteriorate and fail, people are going to continue to spend more and more money on cases of Aquafina and Dasani <laughs> instead of uh, sending that money to their to their water utilities. Right. So yeah. there, there is a there's a there's a nexus here. There's a clear relationship between the quality of the infrastructure and uh, people's consumer choices. You know, uh, some recent research that I did. Mm-hmm. It's about to go to my blog in the in the very near future. I, it's not in the book. Is we found that, that there's a, I've got some recent analysis that shows that people who have experienced uh, main breaks in their neighborhoods or their businesses uh, are much more likely to drink bottled water. If they've ever experienced that problem at all, they're more likely to drink bottled water. Wow. Well, that means that if there's a direct relationship there, if we underinvest in distribution systems, we're going to get more main breaks. Every time there's a main break. People lose faith in the system. You get a boil water notice. People lose faith in the system. And what we find is that folks who are more affluent, there's a main break, there's a boil water notice, they're going to switch to bottled water, but then when the emergency is over, they're going to go back to the tap. The poor folks stick with the commercial alternative and they never return to the tap. It makes sense as I think of myself as a consumer, right? If you had a, have a bad experience with a hotel chain or with an airline or with whatever, you're like, you know what? I'm going to try to find a way around that particular type of transportation or that particular company, whatever. You, you make choices that way. Very, it, it makes sense. All right. So one of the things I love is that uh, the book is not just, hey, here's the problem, but it's here's some solutions. Uh, and I'm also a huge fan of a lot of these solutions that you put in here. Um, I, I think the drinking water sector needs to be a lot more aggressive in going after some of these. You have 12. We're not going to hit on all 12. There are a couple that really jump out at me that I want to talk about. Uh, consolidation, regionalization, right? This This is talked about a lot very little happening with it um you keep you keep hearing everybody talking about it uh i was just at the reservoir center in dc and adam krantz is saying this is something we need to see in the future other it got mentioned three or four times in conversation to me how can consolidation and regionalization help address this trust issue you know, if I want to be hopeful about consolidation, the very fact that that people can have can use the word consolidation in polite conversation now in the water sector is at least progress because that used to be you know, a fighting word. Uh, <laughs> but it, it, at least we've made some some progress that way. Look, nothing else we're going to do matters if we don't consolidate. We've got tens of thousands of separate drinking water systems in the United States. And the fact is, we don't even actually know how many water utilities there are. There are close to 50,000 community water systems. Uh, A lot of those, in a lot of cases, multiple systems are operated by a single utility. So the actual number is probably something like 35 or 40,000. We don't really know. Um, But no matter what, we do know that it's at least an order of magnitude larger than the energy sector. You take all of the electrical and all the gas utilities and, and combine them, you're probably looking at something like maybe maybe seven, you know, six or seven thousand organizations, and that's ch- counting things very generously. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about an order of magnitude larger number of, of drinking water systems, and everything is worse because of it. Over half the systems in the United States, I have half the municipal utilities in the United States, water utilities, have fewer than five full-time employees. Mm-hmm. So there's just not a whole lot you can do when you're that small. You know, if we think technology is part of the answer to our problems in the water sector, well, systems that are operated by three or four guys and a a pickup truck and a a couple of toolboxes, they're they're not going to be using satellite leak detection. Mm. You know, they're they're not going to be doing the most sophisticated new new stuff. And when we think about things like the the human capital crunch that we've got in, in the water sector, we've got trouble recruiting and retaining operators. Well, you know, if you're a young, talented smart and ambitious professional do you want to go work for a system that has eight employees or six employees or three employees 
No, you want to go to a place where you're going to get a chance to work with the best technology, the best people. You're going to have a career path in front of you, higher pay potential uh, for for better benefits and, and and advancement. So all of these things get better with size. You know, I I, I can't I could if, if, if people want to go to my blog, they can they can see graph after graph after graph that shows different performance metrics and everything in the water sector gets better with scale so no matter how you slice it we have to get these organizations have to consolidate they have to get bigger and really ultimately nothing else we do matters if we don't get after the scale problem we can pour all the federal money into these systems that we want but we're going to be right back here in 25 or 30 years because if organizations don't have the scale necessary to maintain their systems and operate them with excellence, we're just going to be right back in, in the same situation over and over again. So mm. nothing gets better without consolidation. It's the necessary condition for everything. It's not sufficient. It's not our only problem, but it is a necessary condition to really address all of the rest of, of the water sector's issues. Yeah. I was just in the San Joaquin Valley in California uh, and checking out these very small communities. And I never really got to grasp this until I went to a little town, Seville, and they have a community water system that serves like 90 something houses. Right. And I mean, they are they are duct tape and band-aids and fighting for any grant they can get to dig a deeper well and having to put up a big tank just to, to have a truck come and fill it with water. I mean, and that's just this little system, you know, they're, they're not getting the best water. That's for sure. Right. You know, I have a friend named Ramiro Barardo at Ohio state university, and he uh, uh, released a, a documentary film last year about mm. affordability water service in Ohio. And one of the things that, that came out, it's an hour long documentary. I recommend it to you. It's, it's called water for all. If, mm. if anyone wants to see it, it's, it's available on YouTube. And, there's a, a thread that, that he follows through the course of this, of this film of a little tiny town. I don't remember what it's called now, but it's one of these very, very small systems. You're talking about fewer than 100 connections, maybe 30 or 40. And they show you the, well, you know, the little well house that serves this, this area and the operator, who's this old retired guy who's out there every day trying to keep the thing running he can't even take a vacation because there's no one else who can run the system right uh, and you, oh. you, you see there's, there's like plants growing through the walls of the well house yeah. and he's out there with his little test tubes and he's trying, trying to do the, the test he's very faithfully trying to to keep the system up and running but it's just not sustainable let alone uh, economically viable and yeah. there's a happy ending because what 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 Ramiro shows in the film is that this system consolidates and ah. it gets it ends up connecting to a larger utility nearby, hmm. uh, and, and they, there's this kind of celebratory moment where they they cap and knock over they cap this well and knock over the old well house, and and the and the guy's like ah oh, I get to finally take a vacation. Uh, <laughs> yeah, a happy ending. But, but we've got thousands of those across the country. Other reform you talk about in your book is, is regulatory implementation and the Safe Drinking Water Act. This is especially interesting to me because of my you know six years working in the Office of Water at EPA. Uh, what, the Safe Drinking Water Act amendments were in the late 90s, and I don't think there's been a new contaminant added to the drinking water standards since then. Uh, PFAS is going to become the next one that has an MCL, which is crazy. Um, what's, what's your take on reform to implementing the Safe Drinking Water Act and why that's key to the trust issue? Yeah, I, I'm so glad you brought this up. You know, I'm going to put aside PFAS issue because that, that's, that's a, a separate yes, yeah, and worthy of an entirely separate conversation. <clears throat> But I think that the bottom line is that we have regulatory regimes that simply tolerate failure. Hmm. They tolerate failure, um, especially for poor, smaller, and or rural communities. There's kind of, with, with, with respect or apologies to former President Bush, there's a kind of soft bigotry of low expectations that applies to a much of the water sector in the United States. I, one of my favorite examples of this, unfortunately, is Jackson, Mississippi. So Jackson, the Jackson water crisis happens. I'm sure people who listen to your podcast know all about it. Got, got national news earlier this year. But the thing is, 
Jackson, Mississippi has been more or less in continuous non-compliance with the Clean Water Act or the Safe Drinking Water Act since the early 1980s. It's had scores of violations over the years and state administrators, federal administrators under Democratic and Republican governments for decades have simply looked the other way or they've said, Oh, hey, Jackson, you really should clean that up. Oh, Jackson, you really should get your act together. Jackson, if you don't fix things, I'm going to be back here in two more years, and I'm going to wag both of my fingers at you and tell you to clean things up. It it, it really isn't all that difficult. Regulations without enforcement are basically suggestions. And we've got a regulatory regime that simply tolerates failure. So... Our very simple advice here is to enforce the law. One of the one of the really interesting things that, that I found some years ago in a study with a guy named David Kaniski at, at, at Indiana University, he and I did a study of regulatory compliance by government-owned versus uh, investor-owned utilities. And what we found was that regulators in both the energy and the water sectors were much more willing to enforce enforce uh, violations or, or punish violations and enforce compliance against investor-owned utilities as opposed to uh, government-owned utilities. So I think there's a lot of politics here. Right? There's, mm-hmm. there's a, a great political pressure to go easy on, uh, on government organizations and to go, uh, go much more aggressively after investor-owned firms. Well, given that 85% of the water sector, uh, drinking water is, is, is local governments, now, that's sort of a recipe for a light regulatory touch. So we need to start by enforcing the laws we've got before we start getting more aggressive about introducing new regulations. That's, mm-hmm. that's my take on it. What would that look like, though, for these smaller water systems that are under-resourced, that have a lot of vacancies, that can't afford to upgrade their infrastructure? How does that work? How do you, How do you kind of force compliance there or, or penalize them or get them up to speed um, in that kind of situation? Yeah, you gotta, you got to consolidate. Hmm. The, there's no other way around it. I mean, there really is not any other sustainable way around it. Uh, and uh, we're right back to the, the earlier conversation about consolidation. Look, a lot of states uh, have given their regulatory officials the legal capacity to compel consolidation. They're the actual cases of consolidation, compelled consolidation, are vanishingly small. Hmm. It's all carrot and no stick, right? It, it, and, and, even, and even then, the carrots are sort of half-hearted carrots in a lot of cases. But look, we're, we're at this moment, I want to be positive, we're at this moment where, where we can do some different things. The, the, the great federal largesse that's come down with the IIJA, in, in, you know, the uh, Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, has that that federal money has given state agencies a tremendous lever mm-hmm. if they want to use it to to drive consolidation to say hey you know your your system's a mess here and we're going to help you fix it but only if you consolidate hmm. only if you consolidate because otherwise this is just good money after bad right this is just this is just giving more federal tax dollars to a system that is ultimately unsustainable so hmm. the way to address these problems is you got to consolidate. You got to get those economies of scale so that they have human capital. And really, the human capital is the main constraint here. You can get federal or state grants. You can get low in interest financing to take care of the infrastructure. But if you haven't got an operator, if you haven't got an engineer, if you haven't got the the people that it takes to run that system, you're going to be in in the same kind of trouble you're you're in right now. So uh, you, we have to consolidate. There's no other way around it. And it would take some um, intestinal fortitude by regulatory leaders to make that thing happen. And, and it's, it's um, understandable, but disappointing to me that a lot of political leaders and agency leaders bend over backwards to, to say, oh, we're never going to force in consolidation. I'm like, OK, so what you're telling me is you're going to tolerate failure. Yeah. And you're, yeah. you're going to tolerate failure for poor communities brown communities and rural communities because you don't think that they are worthy of, of uh, aggressive enforcement. 
Yeah, you're dead. that's so interesting. I will have to watch. We will all be watching to see if this starts to happen a little bit here. Uh, one of the other 12 reforms that really jumped out at me also is around taste. Um, I liked this one. Uh, I travel around. I notice the taste differences in tap water. I don't think that's necessarily bad. Um, sometimes I don't like it. <laughs> I'll just be honest. Uh, you know, I'm like, oh, I don't like the taste of this water very much. Um, but why is that a key part of building, building back trust in public water? Yeah, I'm so glad you brought this up too. I keep I keep saying this. Um, yeah, look, I, I think we grossly in the, the people who work in the water sector grossly underappreciate how important aesthetics are to customer perceptions. You know, your customers are. Let me let me share uh, some some bad news that may come as a surprise to people who listen to your to your show. Your customers do not read their consumer confidence reports. Dun, dun, dun. Right, yeah. and if they do. They probably don't understand them. And unfortunately, we've got some pretty good empirical evidence that the CCRs actually reduce trust. They actually make confidence lower because they're so darn difficult to read and you feel like you have to have a PhD in chemistry to understand what's going on in them. So when, when we ignore aesthetics, we're sort of telling the customer, hey, um, believe our CCR, not your lion eyes and your lion nose and your lion taste buds, right? Look, we are a species who's evolved for millennia, for, for, for tens of thousands of years. Our species survived because we tended to eat things that looked good, tasted good, and smelled good. And we tended to avoid things that, that tasted bad and smelled bad and looked bad. So you can tell people all day and night that their their tap water is meeting or exceeding all federal safety requirements but if it's full of iron so there's brown stuff coming out of the tap they are not going to believe you hmm. the, the way things look the way things taste the way things smell consistently affects trust in tap water consistently affect trust in government we've, we found that in the book we've done subsequent research that shows the same thing People are much more concerned about or, or much more likely to react to the way that their, their water looks, tastes, and smells. Hmm. And, and, you know, I, I'm not an expert on tap water aesthetics. The people who, who are tell me that most folks think that, that water should taste like whatever they drank growing up. Hmm. So whatever your hometown's water is, that's what water should taste like to you. So you go to a different part of the country and there's, they're, they're, you know, they're on a different groundwater source or they've got a surface water source that's different from where you grew up. It's going to taste weird to you. Um, maybe it's going to taste bad to you. Uh, that, that's, that's kind of understandable. The, the bottom line, though, is that utilities really do need to take aesthetics seriously. Mm. I think there's overwhelming kind of paradigm in the water sector that if it's not a, a safe drinking water health contaminant, we don't have to worry about it. Well, your, your customers are worrying about it, and, and it's, it's, your customers are going to develop their trust or distrust in your utility based on the aesthetic qualities of what's coming out of the tap. So I, I think we need to take those very much more seriously. I'm not ready to sit here and say we ought to, we ought to make mandatory, make, make secondary standards mandatory the way we do primary standards. I am suggesting, however, that utility leader, leaders who care about public trust need to start by looking at at their secondary uh, contaminants you know get get the iron and the ph and, and the zinc and all and manganese all these things that we consider sort of secondary to the point where people sort of like almost literally wave their hands and brush it off it's not important well, no it is yeah. important yeah. it is important if, if trust is important yeah there's a there's a community i go to regularly and i uh when i go to a restaurant i don't don't take the tap water. I don't get bottled water, but I'll get a soda or a tea or something like that because I'm like, I can't drink that. That water it tastes really bad. Just being honest sure. here. Just being honest. Hey, in uh, Wisconsin, most of our communities are on groundwater. Hmm. And uh, the, the, just the, the quality of the of the geology around here, a lot of that groundwater is very hard. Hmm. I, personally, my water rates are very, very low where I live. I would personally be very happy to pay five or ten dollars more a month if they would soften the water in the plant. Interesting. Instead of yeah. forcing every homeowner in the city to get a water softener and you know, put salt in it and and, and maintain yeah. that system, um, that that would be something be nice if, if if my utility would do. But because it's not a primary standard, hardness is not a primary standard. They, 
just don't take it seriously. And back to the bigger, bigger point, some people out there choose bottled water even at home because they don't like the taste of their tap water, right? That's that's kind of one of the one of the drivers there. Yeah, it is. But you know, it is also important to note that when subject to blind taste testing, most of the time, most consumers cannot tell the difference between bottled water and tap water. Uh, Very you know, interesting. A common, uh, a, a common sort of narrative that people prefer the taste. And look, and that might be true. And there might be some places where the tap water really does have a very, very strong taste. Um, in some parts of the, uh, of the sometimes of the year, places that have mm. surface water systems are going to get that weird flavor because there's there's a lot of rainwater mm. washing up into the ground, the surface water source. So, so weird things can happen. Yeah. But I mean, when we do so, when we do blind taste testing, if you're old enough to remember the Pepsi challenge, when oh, people yeah. do the Pepsi challenge with 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 tap water versus bottled water. There's never a statistically significant difference between people. Very interesting. One of my uh, one of the things I've had in my head and is going to become a little bit of a crusade in some ways. I'm like, I don't understand why some utilities aren't canning their water or something to have at local festivals, to have at local concerts, to have at community events. You know, instead of instead of like liquid death cans oh coming God. coming from the alps this this comes from the alps and yeah, i mean, and my, this, Travis, people are buying a product that's literally called death <laughs> i mean some we have some, a branding some, problem in, in american water utilities if people right? are buying a can that says death liquid death <laughs> and and i'll buy this can for at concerts here, probably eight dollars, and and it comes all the way from the Alps, and everyone's drinking it. Uh, yeah, crazy. Um, you mentioned consumer confidence reports. This is another pet peeve area of mine. As a communicator, uh, it's insane to me the paper the, the paper that people get that's they can't understand it. I understand why they can't. I have to concentrate when I look at a lot of those things. Uh, it only comes once a year. Uh, I know that's the requirement, but I'm like, why are these not pretty? Why are they not in fifth grade language? Why don't they have big graphics? Why don't they come to people on a quarterly, a more regular basis? Uh, why aren't they coming in an email? Why aren't they coming in a text message? Like, Why are utilities still not doing this? Um, so I'll let you take it from there. Sure. Uh, lots of thoughts on, on CCRs. Um, yeah, I, I think the, the answer to your last question, why aren't they, is because they don't have to. Mm. We, we, and so let me I'll start with this. The, the overarching paradigm that dominates so much of water sector management is, is regulatory compliance. Everything yeah. we do is built around regulatory compliance. It's not around excellence. It's not around doing great work. It's around not failing. Like making sure you 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 do everything that you're supposed to do, and and uh, and make sure you do no more <laughs> than what is required. So what the Safe Drinking Water Act amendments from the 1990s say is, you know, thou shall have a, a consumer confidence report at least once a year, and so that's what they do. They have a consumer confidence report once a year, and they, and they do the absolute minimum that EPA or their state regulators require of them, and and that's all they do because that's all they have to do. Uh, and, and there's not any incentive to do better. In terms of, of, of the design, yeah, obviously we would like to do better than, a, you know, their eight and a half by 11 double-sided small print black and white piece of paper that's full of a table with chemical names that I don't recognize and, and numbers that I don't know how to interpret. Yeah, it, it, it's a terrible thing that most, most utilities are putting out. Look, one, one of the challenges here right now is is that we we know that that doesn't work very well, right? There, there's been a couple couple of nice little studies that show that those CCRs just don't work. And in fact, they make people less confident mm. in their tap water. What we don't know is really what does work, and, and it's been inspiring over the last few years to see different a few utilities. I wish there were more, but a few utilities do some interesting and, and better things with those consumer confidence reports. They're trying some of the things you talked about: more colorful, more accessible language. Um, better graphic design, but we still don't have a very good sense of which of those elements really works and which <laughs> doesn't. And I'm, I'm pleased to tell you that my my co-authors from Profits of Distrust and I have right now a, a grant proposal um, before the National Science Foundation to do a series of 
of experimental tests uh, to see what builds public confidence. And one of those efforts will be led by, if, if we get the grant, uh, will be led by David Switzer at Missouri, and it has everything to do with CCR design. Mm. He, he plans to run a series of controlled experiments to see which kinds of elements of design get people uh, you know, to trust their water systems based on the kind of information that they're delivering. So we need that kind of really careful, rigorous kind of consumer information research that I guarantee you they're doing in the bottled water sector. I, I right. guarantee you that the commercial companies out there are investing heavily in research to get to know what gets people to believe that their product called death is better <laughs> yeah. than something that's com coming out of the tap. I mean, that's an amazing marketing, right? Um, it is. I want to say really quickly about, about yeah. this question of canning or of bottling municipal water. Right, right. Chicago, quite famously last year, did, did a, little bit of that, a little bit of that. I know some years back, Louisville Water did something similar. Mm. It's not clear to me. I think it's ultimately an empirical question whether that helps or hurts. Mm. Right? Does that feed into the idea yeah. that, that you can't get the water out of the tap? The bottle is superior, right? And Interesting. We want to be careful. Hmm. And one of the things that, that, I, that my co-authors and I uh, grappled with when, when we were writing the, the book was, what do we think about municipal water kiosks? There are at least, there's at least one utility I know of out there that actually operates commercial, ta uh, dr commercial drinking water kiosks, like, like the Ice House America or Watermill Express that we write about in the book. And the utility itself owns them and, and operates them in their service area. Hmm. And, you know, I'm, my co-authors and I disagreed on this, right? I, I'm, one of my co-authors is kind of a fan of that approach and suggests, mm -hmm. well, hey, if people are going to be drinking uh, water mm. from commercial sources, maybe we should at least mm. you know, have it provided by the utility so it's well-regulated and, and well-maintained and, and we can price it at a reasonable price so people aren't paying too much. I'm more reluctant. I am mm -hmm. I'm less. I'm less sanguine about that because I worry about the signal that it sends to their customers. Yeah, is that kiosk branded as that utility's water, or is it? You know, it it is, but the the, the primary brand is Ice House America. Uh. So it's got the Ice House America sign, and then the utility's logo is also on the kiosk. Mm -hmm. but, but it's, it's secondary. Secondary. Huh. Uh, but more, more importantly, I just sort of wonder what if what signals does that send to your tap water drinker? Mm. What, what, what signals does that send to your customer? If, mm. if, you, if you are telling them that, um, hey, we, 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 you can drink from your tap, but hey, we could also sell you this product out here that 35 cents a gallon um, <laughs> that that gone through reverse osmosis, and then you'll like, you know, they can Even more. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think we need to be careful. Ultimately, it's an empirical question. Do, does bottling the municipal water help? Does that bottling the tap water help? Um, change perception, maybe? What if, what, if this, uh, what if this can from, we'll say, D.C. water, you know, you go into the, to the grocery store, and it's priced actually based on what you'd pay out of the tap, and this was like a cent and a half. And that was a that'd be a big PR thing in a way, but like, you know, that would get some attention. I'm I'm just thinking creative here, you know, like that would that would be very interesting. Uh, anyway, yeah, you'd have probably have to price it more like twenty five cents because you'd have, price of the uh, can, yeah. price of the can, price of the transport, all, all of that. that stuff. Yeah. Anyway, but, I mean, it's an interesting. Ultimately, it's it's the kind of thing we'd like to run an experiment to find out. <clears throat> Okay, cool. Last one I want to ask you about. Again, there's 12 good ones in there, but this is just a, such a big issue. Um, you know, like I said, I was just in California and seeing people that have dry wells or polluted wells, uh, you know, so many tough situations around the country. Two million people in the United States that don't have reliable, clean drinking water, right? Uh, universal access is something you say would be a reform. Talk about that one. Yeah. You know, they, there's a couple of different ways to think about the 2 million people. Um, in a country where our population is something like 330 million, that's mm. 340 mm. million, that's a very small percentage. Mm. But in absolute numbers, that's a lot of people. Like, that's an enormous number of people. So we do think that that even though it's a small minority of the total population, it's important that we address those folks uh, and, and, and help them get the service that they need. 
there's a clear model here, and that is uh, the way we fund and, and provided communications infrastructure in the United States. When telephone service was first introduced to the United States, obviously it was economically viable in dense cities, right? Mm -hmm. Places where it's easy to lay out wired telephone networks back in the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s. But our federal government made a commitment to providing telephone service to rural areas. And they started this effort toward universal service. Uh, and, I, and I think there's even a, there's even a tax called the universal service hmm. fee or universal service fund or something like that. That, that rings a bell phone. even on my cell phone bill still. Yeah, when you pay your phone bill, there's not all those little miscellaneous yeah. services. One of those is a universal service tax or universal service fee. And it is to provide... Um, phone service, telecommunication service to rural communities where otherwise would not be viable. Right? People who live in far-flung rural communities simply wouldn't have telephone service if it weren't subsidized by the rest of us. Now, we all have an interest in universal service. It, it, is, it is useful for me to be able to make a phone call to a rural part of the United States. So it's good for everyone involved, but it does require a subsidy. We think that that's a potentially promising model for water. Uh, in terms of the funding, a, a universal service fund for water. However, the way we deliver it will also require some some institutional uh, changes. You know, we started this part of the conversation with with consolidation, and a, a, a kind of organizational or management consolidation is going to be required to reach those rural communities as well. We need to look at alternative technologies. We need to look at sort of distributed technologies, point of uh, point of entry. Uh, services, point of, in some cases, maybe point of use, water treatment, that run by centralized systems, mm -hmm. uh, centralized organizations. I mean, uh, there are all kinds of different approaches, but I, I think it, it's we we need to start with this universal funding model uh, to 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 reach these underserved communities and and the, these very sparsely populated parts of the United States, and then be creative about the way we organize and the way we deliver that service. Mm -hmm. Is, is the need for universal service because of, you know, the, the basic human need for water? You can even say the right, take the right part out of it, right? Don't want to sound too political, but is it about that or is it, and or does it feed into this overall trust of the water systems? Yeah, it's both. Yeah, okay. it's both, right? You can make the moral argument that simply this is something that we owe to each other as citizens of an advanced democracy. Yeah, um, but you don't have to make that ethical claim. Uh, you you can make a good good self interested case that it is in my interest to make sure that you, Travis, have adequate water for drinking, cooking, and sanitation because your health is in my interest. Because if you get sick, it increases the probability that I get sick, oh, you know, yeah. or that my family gets sick. So we, we all have an interest in, in this universal service, just like we have an interest in universal telecommunication service. We all have an interest in universal water sanitation services as well. So I, I, th I think that there, there are good selfish interests for all of us in, in having a healthy population, and then universal water service helps us get there. Yeah, if the if the moral argument isn't enough, which in, in my mind I think it is. So, uh, Manny. Awesome talking to you. Uh, I knew we had a lot of ground to cover. There's so much more stuff to talk about. Again, uh, profits of the profits of distrust. Uh, if you work in water, you definitely need to to get this. Uh, you 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 know a lot, but you don't know everything that's in this book. Super informative. Thank you very much for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks, Travis. It's been great chatting with you. Waterloo. Thank you for listening to this episode. To find all podcasts, sign up for email updates, and connect on social media, visit waterloop.org. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop.